Episode 146, John Saunders, founder of Forward Advisory Solutions and author of the book, The Optimizer, Building and Leading a Team of Serial Innovators. If I can just make everyone a mini-me, if you will, everything is going to work out just fine. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes, because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For more information about John, his work, and his book, and for a chance to enter to win a free copy of his book and the audiobook version, look for links in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake146. Thanks for listening. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Raven, and our guest today is John Saunders. Um, He is the founder of Forward Advisory Solutions. He is author of the book, The Optimizer building and leading a team of serial innovators. He's also uh, the host of a podcast called New Degree Press, the creator community. So before I tell you a little bit more about John, first off, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Mark. Great to see you. So I'm really excited about uh, the conversation that we're going to have today, but um, let me tell you a little bit more about John. Uh, He spent more than two decades as a Wall Street senior vice president, sales team leader, and award-winning sales executive. He followed his passion for helping others grow and then founded um, this coaching and consulting company, Forward Advisory Solutions. Um, John has a BS from the University of Wisconsin and an MBA from Georgetown University. And I'll I'll mention, and and, and John, you're the second guest now who was introduced to me by Lynn Yap, who was my guest in episode 117. So I'm thankful for that mutual connection. She's awesome. I really have gotten to know Lynn quite well over the last couple of years. Yeah, well, that's great. I enjoyed talking with her and encourage people again. Episode one seventeen, uh, Lynn is a, a very effective connector of people, among other things. Um, so, so back to you, John. And again, our guest is John Saunders. Um, John, looking back at the different things you've done in different aspects of your career, what would you say is your favorite mistake? So many to choose from, Mark. But <laughs> if I were going to pick one, I would say making the transition into leadership and. You know, so many times when we go into leadership, it's because you were really good at your last job, right? You found a way to be successful as a, whatever it was you're doing, individual contributor, what have you, and going into that role and thinking, oh, I'm just going to turn everybody into me. I was successful doing it the way I did it. And if I can just make everyone a mini me, if you will, everything is going to work out just fine. And as I moved into that role, it began to start, I'm going to, I'm going to say attempting to impose my process, my systems, the way I thought about things on my team, I quickly realized or felt this resistance and realized, whoa, this, this isn't working out here. And I went and fortunately, you know, I always had some great mentors at my firm over the years in, in life. And I went to one of them and asked them, you know, what's going on here? And in fact, he was the one that gave me the mini me term. He said, you can't do that. You know, leading is about delivering results through others, not, you know, uh, uh, with a sledgehammer, if you will. And it was a big eye-opening moment for me. And it really helped me develop the systems and processes to realize that people have so much potential, but you have to find a way with guardrails. If you, I think guardrails are certainly important, but you have to find a way to unleash that potential and you can't do it with a blunt instrument and which 
is what I started out trying to do, and it just did not prove uh, successful. Fortunately, I got good advice early on, was able to change the track and really uh, led into my thinking, my philosophy, and really what turned into my book. So very happy to report that. Yeah, it was well, pretty painful to go through. <laughs> yeah, well, and I, but I appreciate you being able to look back and, and share some reflections on that. Um, as these 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 um, these stories aren't as painful, recollections aren't as painful when when some time has passed. I hope. Definitely not. Definitely not. But boy, when I was going through it, I was sitting there scratching my head, thinking, "Why can't everyone figure out that I was amazing and they should just be like me?" Right. <laughs> but I mean, I, th- I think you know what what you went through there is a really common challenge or problem. Um, like you said, people get promoted. I saw this in the engineering ranks in an auto company. You get promoted based on your individual um, success. And, and, and then now you're a leader, which requires different aptitudes. And um, this happens in healthcare. Nurses, other clinicians suddenly get thrown into a leadership role, often without a lot of training or coaching. Like, oh, you've got the role. You'll figure it out. Was that a little bit of the the situation you were in? I, I say a lot of it, it would be, that was a fair description of it. And uh, yeah, I'd say you nailed it on the head there, buddy. <laughs> so, I mean, how, but you know, a lot of people would not have had the recognition that you did, or they, they wouldn't um, have the benefit of a mentor because some people will continue maybe making that same mistake throughout their management career and may even rise through the ranks uh, in spite of it. But again, can you tell us more? I mean, you know, that you, you said there were, there was, a woe moment. So something was starting to cl- to clue in. Can you tell us a little bit more about what kind of got you wondering was going on to the point of even reaching out to a mentor, which is a another thing to celebrate you for there. But what what were those woe moments of hey, this isn't working? Yeah, thank you for digging in there. And I, really, it was going to people that because I was peers to these folks for many years, mm-hmm. uh, several of them. So we were coworkers. Suddenly, now I'm their boss. And I was going to them with this blind thought that we talked about earlier. I'm just going to tell you what I did and you're going to be much better. And it met with, I mean, it didn't even meet with resistance. It met with, this is just some guy I used to work with and he's going to just, he'll, you know, I'm a remote employee. That's that's how we operated even back then. This will just kind of go away. And I kept running into that. It wasn't even resistance. It was just a nonchalance, if you will. Mm. And And I realized, wow, you know. I've got this great idea and they're not seeing it. There's a disconnect here. What's happening? And as I ran into that three, four, five times, I thought I need to hit the reset button here. And part of my mindset has always been, and this is really where the title of my book came from, quite frankly, has always been, how do I operate more efficiently and effectively? And I constantly challenge myself, my clients, and certainly my team on Wall Street to think that way, right? And sometimes you want to focus on efficiency, you know, emails, you know, uh, uh, virtual assistants, you know, things that are simple and you can outsource for low cost, be hyper-efficient with that. Uh, the other end of the perspective is, right, you could send out t- as a salesperson, just thousands of emails, right? But you're, now you have to look at effectiveness, right? How many people open emails, this kind of thing. Other end of the spectrum, you could do eight-hour meetings with one client, probably going to be really impactful, maybe not, but you're going to be, you're going to lose efficiency. So I'm always thinking about that balance. And so each week, I that question runs through my mind. So even back then, I had that mindset. And, and so I kept asking, what's not working here? I'm being, I feel like I'm being effective with these people. I feel like it's like there's some efficiency here, but I'm not breaking through. There's got to be something else. And that's what got me to dig deeper and start asking around. And the most powerful question I've ever found in my life, Mark, is going to a mentor and asking them, man, I, I'm feeling a bit stuck here. What would you do here if you were me? And that's where it really opened up the floodgates on how to move through it. 
Yeah. And it speaks to just, yeah, the, the, the power of a mentor. And then thankfully you did have somebody to reach out to, because, you know, in some environments um, it's, it's, it doesn't feel safe to express that kind of vulnerability of, Hey, I'm struggling. I don't know what to do. Um, so it's good that you were in an environment where at least you had somebody to, to reach out to about that. That's a really good point. And one of the subtitles in the book, not to keep talking about that, but you're, no, that's right. you're, you're, you're feeding right into it so nicely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, I have a subtitle called safety first, mm-hmm. and it's all about building that safe environment, building that trust, getting, not just telling people to trust you or trying to tell them to trust you, but to show them that they can trust you. Right. And there's a number of ways to get that done, but without creating that safe environment, which I think has almost become a cliche word. Some people throw it around and I noticed one of your earlier interviews was specifically about that. Uh, I watched it the other day and turns out it's not, the environment wasn't as safe as that person had thought. And so you have to create a very authentic, safe environment for, to really unleash people and to get them to think bigger. Yeah. And and there's been, um, yeah, so much discussion around um, the, the, the phrase psychological safety of, of creating a workplace where it's safe to speak up and to ask questions and to challenge things. And I, I think that's, that's one of the key that's one of the, the the key themes across a lot of the episodes here in, in the podcast is, you know, admitting mistakes and being open about that helps create, you know, as a leader, when a leader sets that example, I think that helps create safety for others uh, to speak up as well. And, and to reach out to them and ask for help because, you, you know, you can say safety all you want, but unless your actions stand behind it and someone and someone gives you feedback in a meeting that reports to you and it sort of bruises your ego a little bit, you've got to be ready for that because, Guess what? When you say safety and let me hear what you really what you really think, <laughs> you may not want to hear it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, one of my favorite exercises is Google, my manager is. And just let Google get let <laughs> what Google, are the auto suggestions that start let Google auto populate <laughs> that thing. And uh, let me tell you, Mark, oh, it's not pretty. So the first, I mean, maybe uh, I don't know how how generalized these uh, these responses, these suggestions are, but here are the first uh, three. Uh, my manager is toxic. My manager is leaving. My man- So maybe that would be a good combination. Um, my manager is micromanaging me. My manager is very supportive. My manager is mean to me. So if there's more negative suggestions there than positive, that, that's, that's, that's a, a telling exercise. Sorry to ruin that. A lot of people are probably listening in the car and they can't Google it. So there you, I mean, honestly, the fact that you found a positive one in there surprises me. I almost never find that when I do it. Yeah. Well, um, you, you raise another really good point, John, of, um, you know, the, the telling trap and I've, I've got a friend of mine. Um, she's been a guest on here, uh, (laughs) twice now, Katie Anderson, who really um, tries to coach people of, of getting out of, of telling mode. So whether that's telling people you should do it, I think you should do it this way. And they might say, well, no, I've got my own way. I'm good. I'm getting results. You know, let's let me be. Or I, you know, you, you raise an even better point of telling someone you can trust me doesn't mean <laughs> that's not like flipping a light switch really. Like, oh yeah. Okay. 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 I can. You have, you have to demonstrate that as a leader, as I'm sure you've seen and through your own work and your coaching of others. Can, can you talk a little bit more about, um, like I think this is an important question. How can, how, how can you build trust? It, it, you know, here's my blanket statement on this to set it up. And I have a, a story around this. I think might be interesting. You, it's not as hard as you think <laughs> there, there it is. And, but it takes intentional effort 
So many times you think, oh, I sent that person, my employee, a nice email or patted them on the back or said, good job. And oh, my work on trust is done. And I would argue, just like anything else important in your business plan, building trust is something that needs to be on your calendar. Having recurring calls with your team to establish that report, to establish that trust, to ask for their feedback, and then to take action on it. And if you don't take action, have some kind of follow through, because the worst thing you can do is ask for feedback. I had a manager over the years that was notorious for this, would ask me, hey, we're working on this special project. Would you contribute to this? And I would spend hours working on it. And I would submit it to him and nothing, <laughs> nothing back. And I was like, well, there went Tuesday and Wednesday night you know, for nothing. Uh, so you've got to have that, that you have to, one, take that vulnerable, vulnerable position, ask for that feedback, but then close the loop on it. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm happy to share an example of that uh, if you'd like to hear it. Yeah, yeah, sure thing. Uh, one, yeah. one of my favorites and probably most impactful was I was doing a reorg. Uh, I had a gentleman leave my team and I needed to, I had to make a decision. Do I replace him or... Uh, roll up the territory and maybe give part of it to different adjacent regions. And I did a bunch of analysis and realized it probably makes sense to roll this up and just have one less person on my team. And I, you know, went through all the steps to get that approved and whatnot. But before I drew the final, you know, ink, if you will, or put the final ink on the page, it was going to impact this one gentleman immensely. And I went to him and I said, Dave, uh, I'm thinking about making a change to the region and you've covered, it was happened to be Virginia, which is a very large state. Uh, <clears throat> I said, you've covered this state for so many years. And I, there's no doubt in my mind, I'm thinking about this reorg and not replacing this gentleman and you know doing it this reorg. You know Virginia way better than I do. I said, I'd love to get your feedback on what you think this should look like if there was one less guy in the team. And he about fell out of his chair when I said that to him. He said, wait a minute, you want me to contribute to the reorganization here? Yeah. I said, you've been around a lot longer than me. You know, the area, the footprint, all this. And so he said, can I have a few days? Sure enough, we met at a Starbucks a couple of days later, whatever it was. And he had this whole plan laid out. And it was something like 70, 80% overlap with what I had already mapped out already. And there were a few nuances that I missed on, which I, I which is very much why I wanted to have this conversation with him. We added some budget to him. We gave him some more resources on his team. And at the end of the day, his plan looked much like mine. And now this change management, this change uh, situation he, that was really going to alter his lifestyle hotel. He was not really staying in hotels much. He was going to put it back in the road a bit. Now it was his plan, right? And fast forward 18, 24 months later, not only did he own that, he excelled and got himself promoted. Yeah, I mean, think about the normal path that would have gone on there, right? Hey, Mark, here's your new deal. Take yeah. it or leave it, right? Yeah. Or presenting, here's the plan. Now I want you to buy into it. Yeah. Well, co-creating something with somebody, I think, is is the best way to, as you as you said, uh, it, it almost always leads to a better solution. Um, and and then that buy-in is something that's being built collaboratively along the way. And, and let's not forget, your team members, whether you like it or not, are going to go and talk about you behind your back. Right? It's going to happen. <laughs> and what is that person saying now about me? Oh, my boss just handed me this crappy deal that I don't like. And he said, take it or leave it versus holy cow. I just got to reorg my territory with my boss and I love yeah. the outcome. Well, and, and think of the implications in this job market where, um, you know, the most recent data, like we, we keep having month after month in the U S of a record number of people quitting their jobs for different reasons. It's like, you know, 4.5 million people. And in, in, in this environment, if a manager is going to throw some sort of kind of crappy, take it or leave it, 
opportunity, people may leave it. And then where are you? So I, I think engaging people is one way. And instead of just blaming the people who leave, let's let's step back and think as leaders, how can we create an environment that makes them more likely to stay? Uh, right. And I, I mentioned earlier this, you know, the, the 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 bar is lower than you think to get there. And that story I shared about the reorg was one that was a bit further down the road for me, an earlier one that is was so easy and had such impact for me. I'd, I'd love to share. It's a quick story if mm-hmm. I could. Yeah. Uh, I was reaching out to the team. Hey, I don't think we're getting the feedback, the concentration, the uh, uh, engagement on the conference calls we had. And all I did was basically adopt my manager's conference call schedule, which was every other week for the rest of your natural born life. <laughs> and uh, I asked this one gentleman on the team, you know, I'm not, we're not getting the engagement I was hoping for. What could I do differently here? So not only do I ask that question to mentors, I, I put that to my team and people like coach. And he said, get rid of a bunch of the calls. <laughs> yeah. And back to my point about, Careful, careful if you ask for feedback, they might tell you what they really think. <laughs> yeah. And it sort of was a blow at first. And I realized, you know, maybe he's right. And so I, all I did was go through, and prior to that comment, I, on Memorial Day, I would just push the call to Tuesday. You know, 4th of July, push it a day, something like this. I just eliminated the holiday calls and ones around conferences and things like this. So I got rid of like 15% of the calls. Took his feedback, sent out a note to the team and said, hey, Brian thinks we have too many calls. I'm going to cut out these. You know, the calendar invites went off everyone's calendar. And I publicly announced it. And it, I'd been asking people for feedback a bunch by this point. And it was that simple action that really, that's where the floodgates open. Because all of a sudden, they're Mondays, they're Tuesdays after holiday weekends freed up so they could kind of get the, get the hit the ground running. And that simple act, just knocking out, I think it was like 10 calls over the course of a year. And that, the floodgates opened there with feedback. And it was really, that was a big turning point for us. That's great. And, and so let, let's talk more about the book because you, you mentioned team and you know, it's there in the subtitle. Again, the book is The Optimizer, Building and Leading a Team of Serial Innovators. Um, so I was wondering, you know, first off, um, I'd just like to dig into the titles. I, you know, why, what, what does the word optimizer mean to you? That optimizer, that's a description of an effective leader who builds this sort of team. T- t- tell me more about you know, what, what's behind the word optimizer. Sure. It goes back to the comment I made a a few minutes ago about this sort of how do you get more efficient and effective all the time and finding the balance between those two things, but also intentionally selecting things that you might lean one way or the other on. As I said earlier about if, if, you know, virtual assistants, emails, things, there are some places where efficiency you should maximize, right? Where it's not a good use of your time. Uh, But that's really the premise of the book is trying to build this concept and really my coaching. How do you get people on your team to think about each week, allocate time each week? Five, 10% of their time. It's not 30% of their time or 50, it's five to 10. How do we figure out a project that you can work on to, within the guardrails of driving our business that can be impactful for our team? And to play this out a little bit further, you work with them and help them identify an area that they can really engage with. But the trick is, Mark, helping them self identify by being not their boss, not their manager, but a trusted advisor or their coach and say, you know, what do you think you should work on? How would you go about doing it? Why is that a good idea to you? And helping them self-identify because if they say it first, right? If I'm trying to coach you, Mark, and say, and I say, hey, you're really bad at this. So work on this a bunch over the next three months and I'll check in on you. Nobody wants to have that conversation, but if they can self-identify and then you be their accountability partner over the next three, six, 12 months to drive that, that's really powerful. But more importantly, as they, because what they're doing is going to be something anyone can benefit on the team from, most likely, 
as they figure these things out and implement new systems and processes to whatever it is they're doing to drive innovation and growth, once they figure it out and institute it as a new policy for themselves, have them share it with the team. And now everybody gets to skip the 90 days or whatever it was it took them to get there. And they get to jump to that 90 day point and start with this new clean system that this person's been working on. And when you have them share it with the team, by the way, talk about the twists and turns that you went on. Don't just say, oh, I had this idea and it worked out perfectly. Yeah. Tell them the pivots that you made. Yeah. What, what were the, uh, there's a, a phrase I've learned at some point in my career, uh, you know, learning from uh, small mistakes early on helps us prevent larger mistakes down the road. So you're right. You know, people always want to tell the story, whether it's about a project or the, the entrepreneurial tale of we had an idea, blah, 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 straight line. Here's success. Well, anyone who's been through a project or a startup knows it's it's never as simple as that. There are the the, the pitfalls and, and the mistakes and then hopefully the <coughs> things that we learn from that lead to success. So I'm glad you point that out. It's you know this is where vulnerability and being open and and not afraid of feedback are so powerful because you might have an idea and run with it and your team your if your team might be sitting at sitting there looking at you saying it's a crazy idea Mark it ain't gonna work <laughs> and you keep pushing on it and they're all saying behind the scenes this isn't work if you don't have that level of engagement and trust you could go you could be pounding this you know square peg round hole for months and meanwhile the solution the the, the answer is sitting right in front of you and you never cross that bridge because you don't engage with your team for it and that's. So, so important to engage with them and have that trust. Yeah. And, and those questions that you're pointing up here and, and the engagement help lead us to effectiveness. I'm, I'm glad that you highlighted the difference between efficiency and effectiveness. I mean, we could be doing the wrong things more efficiently and uh, going downhill as a team or as a company. So focusing on some of those questions that you said about, you know, well, why does this matter? That's important context for improvement or optimization. I, I literally, absolutely. And I, I, you know, it's one of the strategies I picked up probably 10 years ago is I literally have a sticky note sitting on my computer screen right now that says, what, why, how? And it serves as a constant reminder to me to ask those open-ended questions to help. Again, it's not, being a leader and a coach, it's not about problem solution to me. It's about problem definition. How do mm -hmm. I help you clearly define a problem so then you can come up with the answer. And again, then ownership becomes such a big part of it because people don't really embrace problems, it turns out, <laughs> and solutions unless they have an ownership stake in it. And so helping them self-identify and have that moment of clarity and ownership is so, so important. Yeah. And that's what leads to, again, as the subtitle references, um, a team of serial innovators. And you know, to, to that word, um, innovator or innovation, I think a lot of times people think of big leaps. Someone might say, well, I, I don't have an innovation, which sounds like, you know, a completely new invention or a product line or a million dollar idea. But in the book, you talk about constant incremental improvement. Can, can you share a little bit about why that phrase is, is meaningful to you and in, in, in the context of innovators? It's, it's such a key part of the story because my observation over the years on Wall Street was people have this enormous talent set particularly in that universe, you've got this great talented person. And I saw so much talent just be hidden. And I remember talking to this one person and thinking, here's a super brilliant guy and he's not contributing at all. Like I could see the potential in him. This is when I was a peer, not a leader. And I realized what's holding them back. And that's a big part of what the research on the book gets into. What I found was shame, loss, uncertainty, and fear. People are so afraid of all of these things. Shame is a very powerful one. Of course, it's become 
quite famous the last couple of years, thanks to Brene Brown and a few others. But one of the data points I found researching the book blew my mind. Shame is such a powerful force that people are willing to do almost anything to avoid it. Because if I try something new, if I try to innovate, do something different, you know, I'm wrong. I, I don't get a bonus. Maybe I don't get promoted. Uh, I get fired, God forbid. I have to tell my boss, my spouse, my peers, I did something wrong. It didn't work. Shame, very powerful force that holds people back. So tying these dots together on optimization versus this emotional charge is these incremental changes, people can deal with them. They're small steps. People can take small steps and change marginally from week to week. But what they don't see, what you alluded to earlier, was over three, six, 12 months, this can add up to significant change. And then if you can take that idea from each team member, get them to focus on an area that they're passionate about, whatever it is, help them identify it, then you can scale it across your team and start to raise everyone up together. And instead of this, what started out as a bit of a push for me to try to drive this mindset became a pull. They began to pull each yeah. other along. And I think a big part of it, it, it um, in, in the promo about the book, uh, I'm going to refer to you in the third person, which is less awkward than you referring to yourself in the third person, I guess. <laughs> so I'm going to just read this here. I pulled this out. Agreed. Saunders asserts, or John, our friend John here, asserts that we should celebrate and learn from failures instead of condemning them. And, and that's really, that's what all, that's what my favorite mistake is all about. Do you have other thoughts on how to create that culture? It might be easier said than done. You know, right back to the point of like, well, I told you to celebrate failures. People still have that shame and that emotion you refer to. What, what are some other things that leaders can do to at least start working toward that culture? One of my favorite stories in the book, I mean, there are many, but one of the ones that really stands out to me is one of the top financial advisors in the country, a woman by the name of Patty Brennan. I mean, she started this company in her basement and now she's one of the, you know, she's on every list that financial advisors have for top financial advisor for slice and dice it all these sorts of ways. She's on, on the list. One of the things she does is each and every year, she brings all 25 of her team members into the business planning meeting. And every single person from the person that sits at the front desk to her, her uh, chief operating officer, they all have the same voice. You have an idea, raise your hand, let me, let's hash it out. And if it's a good idea, we're going to run with it. And to really put her money where her mouth is, literally, they all, if they hit their goals for the year, whatever their new asset goal is for the year, they all share equally in that bonus. Everybody gets the same $10,000 or whatever it is. She has other bonuses, but specifically ties that one to the business plan where they all share equally. We're all in this together. Let's make it happen. The other thing she does to drive that behavior to the celebrate awesomeness or celebrate wins is if you come up with a brilliant idea, help a client out, they send in a referral, something like this. She immediately calls people into the conference room and says, hey, everyone, Mark just helped this client out with this. Here's how it drove a referral for us, helped the client grow our business. Here's a little trophy. She calls it a kudos trophy. And then she gives them, you know, like a gift card to somewhere. But I mean, think about the message she sends to her yeah. team by doing that. It's absolutely brilliant. Well, it's those actions that seem to matter. Because again, back to the futility of telling, you can tell people to collaborate and help each other and be a team. But if there's an incentive or ranking structure <laughs> that encourages people to not help each other, well, we, we know what's going to win. It's human nature. It's the design of that system. So I, I love hearing that story of putting some structure in place. It sounded like really did incentivize teamwork toward those business goals. Yeah, and again, she didn't, it was, didn't keep her from giving out other bonuses, but that one was very specifically tied to planning. Uh, but those things, you know, that's a culture, right? Culture is about what you allow and what you don't allow and what you celebrate and don't mm -hmm. celebrate. And she did a masterful, she does a masterful job of that. 
And that's that's well said. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask you to tell a little bit, one other kind of little nugget from the book I thought was fascinating was some of the negative history of the word innovator. Like that word nowadays is trumpeted. Um, it's a sexy corporate buzzword of innovation and we celebrate innovators uh, in different fields. But can, can you tell that historical story that was there in the book about the word innovator being a real um, a damning word? <laughs> it's it's a, a Henry Burton. 1636. Uh, he was a, a minister in the Puritan church in England. He was jailed for being deemed an innovator by the, the, ju- the king of England. And <clears throat> it, ironically, uh, they, they didn't want change. And in fact, he was trying to fight change. And this is actually, a, 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 I don't want to go too deep. It's a, it's a long story, but it was fascinating that he was put in jail and they actually cut his ears off, which was a barbaric, crazy thing they did back at that time. But what it really came down to was he was, he was making the king feel, uh, feel like he was questioning or seeding, you know, planting seeds of doubt in the king's power. And that's really what it came down to. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you, I really served hard for that story because I want to really point out to people in the book that this isn't a 50 year old phenomenon. (laughs) This is a, it's 400 years. I'm sure I could have found one earlier on. That was 400 something years ago. And it was fascinating to see how much people feared it. And there's several examples in the book, but that one blew my mind. And again, it came down to people feel the king feeling like this guy's maybe sowing seeds of doubt in my power structure. And you fast forward that to today, it still happens, right? If someone comes at you with change, am I losing power? Am I losing people? Am I losing resources? Right. As opposed to how do we start, how do we get in this thing together and make it go? And and at what, at what point in history did the word innovator start having any sort of positive um, celebrated connotation. It took about 300 years. Joseph Schumpeter was the one who set it free <laughs> with his book. And oh, I'm forgetting the title of his book right now, but an economic uh, history of the U.S. or uh, history. I'm killing the name right now. I'm forgetting, but he set it free in 19, about 300, 300 years later. Uh, but for those 300 years, people changed the word to reformation, restoration. So they were still doing it, but they just <laughs> had to come, they had to come up with a new word for it, which is crazy to think. Wow. Yeah. Um, so one one other thing I'll ask about, and again, our guest here is John Saunders. Uh, his his website is johncsaunders.com. Um, um, there was a, a chapter there titled "Resistance is Futile." Now that that phrase normally has, I think, a pretty negative connotation. I think you mean it. it it's it, a more kind of thought provoking way, leading to some positive um, thoughts in that chapter. Um, but can you share a couple thoughts? And you've touched on this a little bit already, but just to drive the point home, like rather than just labeling people as resistant, what can leaders do to try to resist or not? What can leaders do to address the resistance or the, the na- I, I agree with you, it's natural fear of, um, of change. Right. It's, it's out there. And if we don't, you know, as a leader, you're inextricably tied to leading change. Right. And this is why mm-hmm. I, such a big believer in the optimizer concept, getting this incremental change mindset and to help people overcome that emotional burden. And really it starts with getting to know your team at a deeper level. Uh, You know, I had a team member who I did a lot of work with over the years and we're coming to the year on conference and he wasn't going to win the award. I can only give up one award every year for the team and he wasn't going to get it, but he was a close second. And I knew he was going to be severely disappointed to, uh, to not get that award. So I was sitting there thinking, how do I still make him feel special and good about this great year he had, even though he didn't quite get this, you know, praise and the trophy and all this stuff. 
So I called up the event planning team at my company. And as a manager, you always got a suite at the fancy hotel wherever we were. And I called up and said, can you trade my room with this person mm. and give me wow. his room and he can have my room. And, and then I also knew, cause I got to know him and asked him a lot of questions about what do you like to do on the weekends? Where do you go on vacation? You know, really get to know people, you know, do you have a dog? You know, do you have children? This kind of thing. They sound like simple questions. I'm astounded how often I find this information is just missing from a manager mm-hmm. to employee relationship. So I knew all these things about him. Also that he loved to write kind of cheesy notes to clients. It just, mm-hmm. that was kind of his shtick. So I gave him my room. Knew that he liked IPAs. Got him a selection of craft uh, IPAs. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Put him in the uh, in the room with a birthday cake. It was his 40th birthday too. It said "Happy birthday" on the cake, of course, and a note that said, "I thought you could use more room to work on your big ideas you're always having." <laughs> this guy sends me a text message when he checks in. Yeah. He's like, "Come check out my room. It's unbelievable." I walk over. He's got this big suite. He was. This is a 40 year old man. Almost came to tears. Yeah. Uh, because we had built this truck. I couldn't have done that without knowing him. Right. Yeah. All of these little yeah. touches, and so it's. How do you overcome resistance? It's getting to know your team at a deeper level and finding ways to connect with them that are meaningful to them. What a great story. That's, that's, uh, it's very cool. I can see why that would have been so exciting. And uh, thank you. Thank you for that story. So um, as we uh, wrap up here, um, uh, your, your, uh, the book again, um, uh, which I've been enjoying is The Optimizer. Building and leading a team of serial innovators. Um, John, tell us a little bit about your firm, Forward Advisory Solutions. What what do you do? What types of people do you work with? Yeah, it's a, it's an outcropping of the coaching and trusted advisor work I did on Wall Street. And uh, <clears throat> when my firm was sold in 2019, I had a really unique opportunity to leave, and so I took it. And you know, somebody gave me great advice, and they said, if you want to figure out what to do that's uh, that's of interest to you, go go. Uh, immerse yourself in something and your value proposition will manifest itself. And I remember thinking when this woman said this to me, this is two or three years ago, I remember thinking, what are you, Yoda? This is really, you know, <laughs> I, I was like, this is really, I, it, it didn't register. And then I started going to all these events and talking to all these people and networking and all this, all these things. And I met this guy and I started asking questions. I met him at, it was a pitch event for a, like an angel uh, networking, uh, angel pitch event. I started talking to one of the guys who pitched that night at the break. And I just asked him questions about his business back to my sticky note. What, uh, why, how? Mm-hmm. And like 15 minutes later, he looks at me and he goes, could we hire you to do that? <laughs> I said, hire me to do what? <laughs> I was just asking you questions because I'm curious, yeah. right? Yeah. He said, to coach us like this. Mm-hmm. And I realized, oh my gosh, this is actually what I do for a living. And as I've worked with more and more people, I, I do coaching for the actually the company that published my book. I do executive coaching as well for leaders and emerging leaders. And <laughs> it was fascinating to to just have that moment and realize as I've gone through this, that my value proposition is helping people unlock complexities that are oftentimes staring them right in the face. They don't see it because they're so busy and don't allocate time to it. Help them to think and dream bigger and challenge them in a non-threatening way and create a practical roadmap to get there. And that's really what I've done with folks over time because so many times we get in our own way, right? Mm -hmm. We're so busy on the you know, doing the day-to-day stuff that we don't allocate time to reflect and think about these things. And that's really what I help people do is unlock those challenges and find a way to solve them. Yeah, that's great. And um, it makes me think, could I, would I be a better host if I was just asking what, why, how questions <laughs> and leaving it at that? Those are good inquisitive um, questions. So um, with your, your podcast, John, it's a new degree press, the creator community. What, what's the focus of that podcast? That's really about uh, as new authors come through the program as they publish. It's a chance for them to have a have you know one of their early podcasts, if maybe not their first one, 
And it's been a ton of fun building it and developing it. We actually do auditions for it. Uh, and that's part of the training because I, as I tell everyone as we go through it, this isn't about this podcast. This isn't your Super Bowl podcast to promote your book. This is one of 20 or 30 you should go be on. And so it's just been an enormous amount of fun. But what's really interesting about hearing all their stories is one, the, 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 the absolute broad range of stories, where they're from, what their stories about, the challenges they face, how they've overcome them. But more interestingly to me is everyone who writes a book oftentimes thinks, oh, I have this story to tell. And what they get coached through is it's really about learning and growing and researching. And almost everyone has a story that I was thought I was going to write this book. And I got to this point in my research and thought, oh man, I'm going to pivot and turn this way. And I got a such, I got such a better book out of it. So it's, that's really what the, it's about the author journey. How do you fit into your life and what's your story about? And, you know, how did it change you and how did you grow through it? It's, it's really a lot of fun. They're great stories and hopefully inspiring to other people to think about writing a book. Yeah, well, good. So hopefully if we've got listeners who are thinking uh, about doing that, they can uh, check out your website and that podcast and more. Uh, again, you can find John uh, online at johnccsaunders.com. Uh, I'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes, social media links. You can uh, find the podcast and all of that. And again, the book, The Optimizer, Building and Leading a Team of Serial Innovators. So, John, I'm not going to try to do uh, the, the the Yoda voice, but I'll, <laughs> I'll try to channel Yoda and say, good guest you are. <laughs> Is that how Yoda would say it? I don't know. It's pretty close, I think. I'm pretty close. <laughs> but, John, uh, it's been great talking to you. Thanks, uh, Thanks again for being a guest here with us today. What a pleasure, Mark. Thank you for having me on. Well, thanks again to John Saunders for being our guest. Again, to enter to win a copy of his book and his audio book, look for links in the show notes or go to markgraven.com slash mistake 146. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.